Hi there. Thank you so much for joining and uh, welcome. My name is Josh. This is Dharma Punks New York, our Tuesday night class. If you are interested in attending our five day retreat, beginning of September over Labor Day, please feel invited. It's going to be up at Garrison Institute, and the information is now live on both the Garrison website as well as dharmapunksnyc.com in a beautiful location overlooking the river with hiking trails and a bunch of teachers. If you're around, maybe an inviting possibility. It's easy to get to Garrison. It's just a short hour-long ride up the Hudson. Yeah, so, uh, and as well, if you'd like to support my work, the Venmo is DharmaPunksNYC, and the PayPal button is on the website. So thank you for joining. And tonight, we're going to be talking about burnout and cognitive overload and mental fatigue and ways to avoid these outcomes. So relax, settle in, and jumping right in. Imagine you are in a normal day with five to 10 unread emails, one email response half-written, Maybe you've got some text messages waiting to be responded to. Maybe on your browser, there are 10 open tabs. Maybe at the same time, you're trying to focus on making plans for dinner, but you also realize that it's the tax season. So you've also got to focus on preparing the info for your taxes or getting them mailed out. And then suddenly you find yourself unable to focus, unable to uh, take a step forward, stalled, overwhelmed. Or imagine a job where we're called away from our tasks to an ongoing, unpredictable series of Zoom meetings or messages that pop up from coworkers needing information or changing deliverables. And then over time, this job leads to burnout. We no longer, we feel we're at our wits end, that we can't function, that we can no longer be creative. So it's important to note that Conscious processes of the brain are only capable of doing so many tasks at the same time. Primarily, they, one, create language-based narratives of what's going on. We transform our lived experience into a stream of uh, narrative or inner chatter that continuously uh, narrates or provides a kind of voiceover to our experience. And also consciousness can sustain our attention on a narrowly focused task or 
focus our attention on a computer screen or a, a smartphone. And consciousness can create uh, goals and then break goals down into sequences that allow us to achieve desired aims. Like, for instance, it can help us write a detailed email or suppose we realize in the late afternoon that we want to eat pod thai. So we might realize, okay, I'm going to go online. I'm going to make a list of ingredients. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to buy the groceries. I'm going to come home. I'm going to follow the recipe. And all of those sequences are brought to us via conscious processes of the brain. But unconscious regions store and retrieve far more information than consciousness. For example, unconscious regions of the brain maintain what's called internal working models of the world. And that's what basically allows us to interpret each situation we're in and discern if we should feel safe or on edge. In the background, we're monitoring the setting, what other people are doing, and we're evaluating whether we should or can relax our bodies or not. This is called sometimes neuroception. And these models also of the world help us know when we meet someone that we feel safe how to act in accordance. These models help us make sense of every situation we're in and determine you know, for instance, when we walk into a gathering and we don't know if the gathering is going to be a difficult, challenging one or one to relax, and then we see people dancing and laughing. Well, what happens is in the background, our unconscious processes compares this against all these previous experiences of our life and determines, oh, I'm at a party or a gathering that I'm safe, I can relax, I can see what's going on. And then unconscious regions of the brain also keep track of and work on a lot of tasks that we're not consciously aware of. So for example, suppose you're talking with someone and you want to say the name of a band or a song that you enjoyed, but you can't remember it. And then you give up, and then hours later, voila, the answer pops into your mind. And it turns out it was, uh, I don't know, a song by uh, Black Sabbath, or they might be giants, or who knows. Or imagine you're cooking and you get a call. And while you're talking with someone on the phone, you still remember at times to suddenly check the food to see how it's looking. Or suppose hours after you've completed work and you've come home, you suddenly remember that you forgot to return someone's message or that you forgot one uncompleted task. In other words, the frontal lobe 
has unconscious regions that are constantly keeping track of tasks that we haven't completed. Sometimes for the better, Albert Einstein noted that when the mind creates a problem that it cannot solve, the best thing he thought to do was to stop working on the problem and let it gestate in the back of the mind, and that very often the next day <coughs> a solution would arise. So the mind is still working on the problem, even though we're not consciously aware of it. And we're going to talk in a little while about why this is so important. Now, beyond this, independently from all these models or uh, these pre-conscious events, there's also a lot of uh, feed-forward signals in the brain as well that are unconscious that are determining whether we should be anxious, curious, sad, or excited in any situation. But the point I'm trying to make is that unconscious mental processes are capable of storing and processing and retrieving far, far more information and handling far more tasks than consciousness. Nelson Cohen, a famous psychologist, noted that there's a magical mystery of four, which is the amount of basic tasks we can hold in consciousness at any one given time, including tasks we're not thinking of, we're purposely not thinking about. But then if we and it doesn't matter how intelligent or efficient we are. Once we surpass this magical number of four or five at most tasks or pieces of information, then working memory is overwhelmed. And that's where a chain of really unfortunate events starts happening. A significant weakening in the feedback signals that lead to regions of the brain functioning and correlating. The modeling of the frontal lobe breaks down and we're no longer capable of making sense of new situations. Information starts feeling raw and intense. And what's most important is that all of the cognitive processes can grind to a halt. When we are maxed out with information, we're unable to filter relevant information from distractions. We become not only completely inefficient, but we start making mistakes. We start, in fact, experiencing, as we'll see, a slight state of depression. Multitasking increases the secretion of cortisol and adrenaline, and it doesn't just impact thought and processing, but it causes headaches, increased heart rate, digestive disorders, and stress-related maladies. The Buddha called the mind grabbing onto too many items at once asavas. He said, suddenly the mind has opened up channels, and while it's going out to try to uh, cling on to things in the world, what it doesn't realize is that all of this uh, kind of what he called sewage or garbage is coming in that adds to stress. One of the great uh, Buddhist renunciates that I was fortunate to sit with every year for many years in a row 
uh, Tan Bhikkhu, noted that the most harmful and regrettable acts arise from being overwhelmed by information, which means we feel trapped and invariably over time we start lashing out at people that are close to us. So what leads to cognitive overload? Well, <clears throat> first, it's our choices. There was a study by the Pew Research Group that of people who experienced cognitive overload or burnout at work, and 80% said they had a habit of seeking ever greater amounts of information through their devices, their smartphones, their computers. And they acknowledged that the more information they were seeking, the more stress they, they experienced. And yet, they believed that following information, news, social media, and so on and so forth, provided them with somehow greater control or greater motivation. So in other words, the simple choices of allowing ourselves to be surrounded by incoming streams of information is a significant culprit. But Worse than that is one of my favorite uh, psychological insights called the Zygarnik effect. And it's almost uh, comical how few people know what the Zygarnik effect, uh, much less the interrupted task paradigm is. So in 1927, a great psychologist, Bluma Zygarnik, she noted that waiters in large restaurants continue to remember the orders of each table as long as the order hadn't been served. But the moment they would see that the order had been served, they promptly forget what each person had ordered. So in other words, the waiter, while the task wasn't completed, it would be it would stick in mind, it would stay present in unconscious processes. And she subsequently showed that interrupted tasks stay in the background, processing, using up mental energy, interrupting the flow of attention. She was fortunate to have a wonderful mentor named Kurt Lewin, who was very important a uh, social psychologist. And Lewin, uh, following her research, postulated that the more, un the more interrupted tasks, the more stress. And when tasks would be completed, the stress would be resolved. So this resulted in literally years and years of psychological research into interrupted tasks and wonderful studies like the effects of work stress and appraisal by eight Swiss psychologists showed that can interruptions of tasks increase the stress hormone cortisol. And while we might not think that putting aside a task and not completing it doesn't bother us, it affects us on a psychological level. It's been found in another study 
of psychologists in California and Germany that when our tasks are interrupted, we experience greater stress, greater frustration, and work seems more and more difficult. The neuroscientist Jan Daniel Levitin, who's very, very influential, noted that the inability to complete prioritized tasks and to focus on one thing at a time until it's completed wreaks havoc with our perceptual categorization and our and creates cognitive overload. So while <clears throat> work environments that are too stimulating, that produce intrusive noise or uh, background information, like coffee shops or often planned offices, can of course contribute to cognitive overload. By far and away, a greater concern is when we are subject to being interrupted by work colleagues, family members, pets, dogs. In other words, in many ways, very often, the direction of moving away from working in offices to working in large open space uh, rooms or working at home where intrusive demands sometimes are prevalent creates far more burnout and far, far greater cognitive overload, which leads to work and life seeming much, much harder and much, much more difficult. When we stop working on a task, like for instance, suppose you start to draw a circle and right when you're about to conclude the circle, a clinical researcher, researcher says, stop drawing the circle at this point. And then the psychologist gives you something else to focus your attention on. Well, guess what? The amount of ambient stress in skin sensors and in pulse, uh, your pulse and in how much oxygen you're using up goes up significantly because you haven't completed the circle. You haven't completed what's called cognitive closure. When we don't have cognitive closure, the unconscious regions of the brain keep the incompleted task alive, active. And it's only until we finally complete drawing the circle or achieve cognitive closure that the task is no longer being worked on on the unconscious. So the more tasks during the day that are interrupted, that we don't return to, that or that we are we haven't completed that haven't achieved cognitive closure is a significant source of how much burnout how much exhaustion how much irritability we experience in settings a third and important uh, consideration is simply sustaining very narrowly focused attention on a small visual field this is known as like uh, Zoom fatigue when or any kind of mental fatigue to focus attention externally on a very 
very small piece of the visual field requires an enormous amount of what's called thalamic blocking. We have to put aside all of the ambient stimuli that's seeking our attention. And what happens is we use up a lot of glutamate to do this. And over time, when we use up the glutamate, adenosine kicks in. And with adenosine, there's an upregulation of cortisol and a downregulation of dopamine. So we stop feeling excited, motivated, happy in our jobs. So <clears throat> people experience far less fatigue from meetings over phone than they do over Zoom, simply because while you're talking on the phone, your eyes can look anywhere they want. There's no blocking or no suppression of information. So you can relax and your brain doesn't chew through as much glutamate. So limiting information and cognitive closure is key. Even if a task isn't completed, holding a representation, creating a representation of it and uh, doing something that creates the impression that we've finished it up is very useful. So for instance, if you're doing something, responding to an email or to a message and you're interrupted, sometimes simply making a note, writing it out on a piece of paper or doing something to visualize I have to return to this, can allow one to have enough cognitive closure that we're not carrying it around all the time unconsciously. I set up my entire uh, day to essentially uh, minimize the likelihood of cognitive overload. I don't like feeling burnt out. I don't like feeling worn out, fatigued, stressed, or irritable. So I do a couple, uh, uh, a series of things that from reading the research have minimized and made it so that at the end of the day, I am not exhausted. One of the first things I do is I will read a couple of articles, generally from the the Guardian or the BBC or the Times or some science uh, or psychology site. <coughs> I'll read it, the articles to, to completion. I'll put them aside. I limit reading and responding to emails in the mornings and then at night. I never look at them in between. When it comes to text messages, there's three occasions I will look at my phone and respond to them. This means sometimes I miss information about people who are who need who need information, but that's okay. It's not worth it for me to be burnt out. So I will look at texts in the very late moment between my 11 and noon appointments for I'll look at them in the, the late afternoon and once right before I uh, relax for the evening. If I'm pulled away from a task, I try to return to it immediately or I write it on a list of things that I have to do. Um, and immediately after work, we'll talk about this, I practice clearing my mind through uh, meditation to empty out all of the unresolved tasks so that I 
can move into the evening hours without anything from the day popping up or claiming my attention. There's been some wonderful studies about this. It, uh, gentleman Maximilian Fay wrote a uh, did a study called Components of Mindfulness Training. And then there's also another uh, study, Person, Task, Fit, Emotional Consequences of Divergent Thinking by Marta Ronska. And there was another one by Stefan Schmidt, all that showed that in meditation, in, when we maintain an open, accepting, expansive attention on our internal experience in the here and now, significantly alleviates background processing of uncompleted tasks. In other words, it empties our mind out. It's a way of wiping the drawing board clean. It's a valuable practice. This is why when I work with people and they tell me they meditate first thing in the morning, I personally never understand it because for me, there's no information that's built up in the morning that I want to empty out. I want to use meditation as a way to literally restore my mind to a state of um, openness, curiosity, uh, relaxed interest. I don't want unresolved issues or things that have piled up still being worked on. I don't want to carry stress, any stress that's occurred from one day to the next. So as the Buddha said, to develop and to clear the mind of, of asavas, those channels um, that where all this stuff comes in and fills it up and doesn't let go, we have to give the mind a place where we let go of everything that isn't important, a kind of center. At Harvard, Sarah Lazar uh, noted in a meta-analysis and study of fMRI scans that in as little as two months, the uh, daily 20-minute concentration practices brain regions that directly correlate to expanding working memory and reducing cognitive load increase the cingulate and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So the studies and the science show us that meditation along with yoga and walking in nature are some of the most valuable tools to prevent cognitive overload, mental fatigue, and burnout. So with this, let's actually practice some meditation to empty out our minds of all the tasks that haven't been finished or completed, just allowing them to be flushed away. So finding a comfortable seated position And um, closing the eyes,
taking a nice, complete in-breath, and then climb ourselves towards very long, smooth, complete, unhurried exhalations. And use this time to take a survey of your body and just relax any area that relax or adjust, any area that seems tense, involuntary muscle groups, especially carrying uh, the ambient stresses of the day, the incompleted tasks when when we haven't completed tasks, involuntary muscle groups start to clench. So find those involuntary muscle groups in the back, the lower back, the jaw, the micro muscles around the eyes, the cranial muscles in the face, abdominal muscle groups, all the areas where over time you notice that when you're feeling worn down, fatigued, overwhelmed, which areas of the body start to reflect or express that tension and just bring a soothing, caring, empathetic, compassionate awareness to these parts of the body and just breathe into them, shift them to a comfortable position, find the ease around these areas and spread the ease into these resistant parts. And then if you like, just bring your attention to any area of the body where it feels most easeful to be aware of the sensations of breathing in your body. Very often for me, it's the front of the chest or the abdomen. Sometimes it's the shoulders. Other people find the tip of the nose. There's no right way or place to observe the breath. The Buddha never indicated any specific area. He simply noted to be aware of breathing in and be aware of breathing out. And to first simply find a kind of breathing that feels perfect 
for any given moment. So for example, sometimes when we're sleepy, we need to really focus on really strong, engaging, very, very uh, filling in-breaths, inhalations that move the front of the chest, feeling the energy moving up the body from the belly up into the chest. But if we're feeling worn down or anxious or jumpy or stressed, then focus attention on the exhalations, trying to make the release of the breath is unforced, not pushing it out, just allowing it to leave. And with each inhalation, feel the energy subsiding and the energy moving down the torso. When you feel so inclined, try to find the most comfortable part of the body. Sometimes it might, for me, be the eyes or the palms of the hands, or sometimes there's this feeling of release in the back of my neck into my shoulders. Other times, it could be in the front of the torso. And just find that really comfortable sensation in the body. And with each exhalation, try to imagine the ease 
spreading through the body like you're kneading water into dough. If you feel some part of your body relax, just continue down the body, releasing. Once you've managed to connect with that easeful part, if that's been possible. Now, just without even focusing on the easeful part of your experience, just open up awareness to the sounds and all the sensations that your experience, just relax and receive each moment without holding on to anything. If you like, you can watch the, and receive the closed eye visuals behind your eyelids, or if you want, you can simply hold a very simple image in mind, what the Buddha called a nimitta, it could be a very simple, color or shape or even a place where you feel very safe. 
an ocean or beach or a place in a park by a river. Just hold a simple, soothing image in mind. And just from this point on in the meditation, just allow your awareness to be filled completely with the present moment, the feelings that arise, the sensations in the body, the sounds. Just allow yourself to be fully present and using all of this open, non-judgmental, caring, interested awareness to fill up your mind and push out of awareness all of the information the stories, the news, the unresolved tasks of the day, just let it all be flushed out and become fully immersed for a while in your present experience.
One of the hallmarks of a mind that is still busy and working in the background on unresolved issues is clenched involuntary muscles in the back, the neck, the shoulders. One of the most helpful parts of meditation is relaxing muscles, which in turn relieve these unconscious processes that are still working on all of the issues and challenges, despite the fact there's nothing we can do about them. In relaxing the body, you relax the mind.
If you like to use a visual representation, imagine you've built a very small vessel, maybe a foot long by a foot wide, or maybe a little bit more. It's a basket that floats. And you could put all of the unresolved things that are not finished or completed or anything else that's been nagging in the back of your mind. Just put it in that vessel. Just imagine lowering it into a river, watching the tide recede, and with it, all of the issues being resolved for the time being until you choose to return to them. Letting go of anything that isn't finished for the day, just let it go, releasing the body, representing it and allowing yourself to have closure. And whenever you're ready at another time, you can pick it back up.
Let's just take one final relaxing, calm in-breath, and then with your out-breath, imagine everything just being emptied out, released, let go of. And just try to relax into a body without anything to do, nothing to do, nothing to work on, nothing to attend to. And whenever you're ready, just try to bring this complete, open, resolved, easeful state as much as you've been able to cultivate it into the rest of your evening and opening your eyes. So thanks for listening.